0: And uh, next up, we're speaking with Sulek Dreyfus. Uh, uh, you, are you probably, I mean, you'll know the, the Julian Assange story, I think most people, but um, the WikiLeaks founder is still in prison in London while the courts decide on a United States request to extradite him under the US Espionage Act. And last week, Yahoo ran an extraordinary feature story about Assange, which detailed a CIA plot to capture and even assassinate him. Uh, it's a lengthy read, which also details the Involving United States government interest and surveillance of Assange and WikiLeaks over more than a decade, and that story has led journalism and rights groups globally and in Australia to renew their calls for Julian Assange's release, if the claims are proven to be true. And Dr. Sulette Dreyfus is lecturer in the Com- School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, and she co-wrote a book with Julian Assange way back in the '90s called *Underground*. And she's our guest this morning. It's great to have you, Sulette. It's been a little. Wow! Indeed, very happy to be here. And I was, I was, you know, reading out parts of that intro, just thinking, "Whoa, this is just so out there." This story, and I think you know, many responses to the Yahoo story even start with, "If proven true." Um, yes. What are your thoughts on on the Yahoo story about the CIA discussing plans to capture or kill Julian Assange?
2: Uh, I think it's entirely true. I mean, let's understand a couple of things about you wouldn't normally necessarily think uh, Yahoo News breaking news, but it turns out Yahoo News has a really great track record on national security investigative journalism. It's a narrow niche, but they do it exceptionally well. And you don't have to produce a lot of stories a year. You just need a couple of really great ones. And this is, of course, the story of the year in (laughs) that regard. So... um, We've seen three reporters. I can only assume they've worked on this for months. They have interviewed 30 sources, which is enough for a PhD, practically. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I suspect, and in fact, they hint at a number of those sources are former intelligence sources. They're probably also from legal departments uh, who have, in, you know, interacted with Mike Pompeo when he was head of the CIA or possibly at state. Um, and, and my guess is, I don't have evidence for this, but, you know, my guess is that... They are the good people in the system and there are some good people in the intelligence agencies who just went, are you nuts? Um, you know, you cannot assassinate one of our closest allies citizens because he is a journalist doing his job. Like that is beyond the pale. But of course, that didn't stop Pompeo. And as soon as the story broke, uh, a few days later, he did an interview <clears throat> with Megyn Kelly uh, of Fox News, where he said that every one of those sources who spoke to the investigative journalist at Yahoo News should be prosecuted. Uh, and I, I was waiting wow. for him to say and kidnapped and assassinated, but he didn't actually say that. So, <laughs> it's
1: crazy stuff, isn't it? It's it's um it just it, it really just boggles the mind. But I mean, what do you think that the Australian government are making of this? I mean, we, you know, we don't know whether they were aware of of this plot at all? Um, What's your sense of of what their response should be to this?
2: Um, Look, the Morrison government must answer the question, did anyone know in the senior or junior bureaucracy or in the ranks uh, of the parliamentarians or cabinet that our closest allies, because Britain was complicit in this plan, and that was what the report uh, revealed, that our closest allies in the Five Eyes, the UK and the United States, were hatching a plan to kidnap, possibly poison, and assassinate an Australian citizen publisher and journalist, they must answer this question. And I think there will be a number of situations where they are asked it in parliament and elsewhere, and they cannot fob it off saying, oh, National Security, we're not going to tell you anything because there is this is actually a political question. Now, if they didn't know, It begs the question of how can you be best friends with a country? How can you sign on a billion dollar deal with them on a sub deal when you're breaking your commitments, your written contractual commitments to another country, France, uh, in order to do this? when they are planning to assassinate your citizens. Normally, countries take a very dim view of other countries who want to assassinate their citizens. Mm. Um, But in the alternative that they did know, my gosh, there will be hell to pay. Because you are completely abrogating your responsibility, whether you are the foreign minister or the prime minister or the minister of Homeland Security, you cannot... um, acquiesce in or agree to in any way a plan to assassinate your citizens and still stay in your office. Well, it, look, it's an extraordinary
0: story. And, and the MEAA, the, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, you know, call for the Australian government to intervene here. And I, I mean, who would ask the question in Parliament, do you think, too late? Like, who, who have we seen, you know, speak uh, about Julian Assange in the Australian Parliament to date?
2: Well, there are a group of of parliamentarians, um, uh, including people like Rex Patrick, independents, but also people from the left and the right, you know, and, and people who you would not necessarily think they're people who, you know, lefties in Melbourne might be aghast because they're right wingers from rural Queensland, but they all have the same shared principle that a journalist has to be able to do their job if you want to live in a free and open democracy and that you can't assassinate Australian citizens, you know, or lock them up and send them to prison. So Julian is facing these 17 um, charges of violating the U.S. uh, Espionage Act and then one count of conspiracy to commit a computer intrusion that is basically written like the Espionage Act. Let me tell you about the Espionage Act in the U.S. It was formed around World War I, and it's a terrible piece of legislation. So it's a piece of legislation that that has basically two choices if you're charged with it. Either you admit you did it, in which case you're guilty. There's no mitigating circumstances. No explanation can even be heard by the court. Or you deny entirely that you did the act which is ridiculous, of course. So there is absolutely no defense that can be offered. That's why it's a terrible piece of legislation. This is the 50th anniversary um, of Daniel Ellberg, Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, the U.S., very famous Supreme Court case, um, which basically ruled in favor of the media. New York Times, Washington Post, um, Ellsberg had been an intelligence analyst, a whistleblower, released a set of information to the major newspapers about the fact that the U.S. government was lying about how the Vietnam War was going. It's going great. It's going great. Actually, it's not going great. And and there was no way we we're going to win this war. And uh, sound familiar? Afghan war law. The Iraq war logs. Okay, so part of the reason that that case was dropped was that the judge decided there were so many, quote, bizarre offense, uh, bizarre events that offended a sense of justice. Those were the exact words that the judge used um, that the case. And this is because they had been bugging him and following him around and basically kind of doing similar harassment to they're doing to Julian Assange. They had been bugging his psychiatrist's office like mad madness. Right. And and the judge basically ruled that not only was this a free press issue and the charges should be dropped, but that when a government behaves in such an atrocious manner, um, it, it, you know, you cannot respect the charges that it brings forward in this way. And so Ellsberg has very Ellsberg, who is in his 90s and is still very chipper intellectually, has made the very important point that um, Assange's case parallels Ellsberg's and that, in fact, the courts could drop it on the same basis. Now, the truth is that President Biden wants to distance himself from the lunacy of the Mike Pompeo regime just out there, unaccountable, not rule of law. I mean, Pompeo had advice from his lawyers on staff that what he was planning was probably outside the rule of law, but he didn't care. Now, Biden's people are much more sort of balanced, even keel, and, and I don't think they want to be tarred with... Um, the ugliness of the Pompeo regime, which, of course, included a return to torture, for example, uh, by the intelligence agencies. So there's an opportunity here for Biden and I don't know whether or not he's got the backbone to do it, but there's an opportunity here to go. I wash my hands of of that dirtiness, those dirty charges, those trying to frame Julian Assange with rape allegations that were, of course, eventually dropped from lack of evidence um, and and then, you know, and have a fresh start. I mean, you know, Biden has declared that he wants to have a summit of democracy around the world and have the U.S. as the leading light in democracy, openness, transparency. And and media is a core piece of that. Well, I don't know that he can try and lead that, you know, unify and lead such a um, a coalition of the Western world um, if he's still, you know, trying to extradite mm-hmm. a publisher uh, and 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 has not disavowed the plan
1: to assassinate it. Yeah, speaking with Dr. Soulette Dreyfus, lecturer in the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. Back in the '90s, she co-authored a book with Julian Assange. And today, we're talking about the the recent um, revelations about a CIA plot to capture and potentially even assassinate Julian Assange that was published by Yahoo. And I mean, as you've touched on, this isn't the first uh, kind of piece of information that's raised eyebrows about some of the conditions he's been subjected to. And uh, there was some reporting last year that, that showed how the Ecuadorian embassy had been bugged, and that involved spying on Assange's legal counsel. And now, so clearly, that's sort of a fundamentally wrong thing that shouldn't be done for anyone who's facing a potential trial. But sort of on the other side of this, I suppose, as background, I mean, the the Vault 7 um, leaks that, that sort of kicked off Pompeo's real aggressive stance towards Assange was about the CIA's cyber surveillance and kind of using everyday web browsers and apps, um, to potentially monitor people's activities. And I mean, here in Australia, we had a a different, but in some ways, similar concern around the AFP rating Annika Smithhurst when she was reporting on the expansion of the Australian Signal Directorate's ability to spy on Australian citizens. So, I mean, do you think that the government, the Australian government is capable of sort of disentangling its concerns about, you know, uh, everyday people becoming aware of some of the, the overreach of its, its security agencies, um, as well as the the rights that should be given to any Australian citizen who's facing charges such as Assange is in a different country.
2: I don't know. I, you know, they have yet to prove themselves uh, as capable. You know, they're they're very good at grandstanding, saying, "Oh, he'll be afforded every you know justice under the law," except clearly, an assassination plot, a plot to poison him and and kidnap him is extrajudicial killing and is not justice under the law. Um, so we would have to see whether or not they actually have any backbone. Uh, to to make inquiries and do something uh, of that nature. I mean, what WikiLeaks reported on, Yahoo wasn't quite right on a nuanced issue, okay? So it's been reported that WikiLeaks published you know, the CIA's trove of uh, of digital tools, kind of hacking tools, um, offensive hacking tools. That's not right. It published information about those tools. In fact, it redacted a whole lot of information, I assume, um, that were the tools themselves. Now, theoretically, if you had lots of time and resources, you could build a proof of concept um, uh, um, software which would enact those um, uh, those tools that would kind of, if you will, recreate them. So in that sense it's significance, but the, the significance of the story that WikiLeaks ran <clears throat> that I think has been a little bit lost and is very important is, is a couple of things. First of all, in the cyber world, There is a offensive role being taken by the United States and I assume Australia that is not all about defending ourselves from attack. It's actually about building a arsenal of weapons. Second, that these weapons are around using everyday pieces of software or operating systems um, or you know or router software that we may use um, and and that they have known about a hole in these systems and exploited it, and they haven 't told us, and they haven 't told the companies now if you 're an American that's really bad because the companies you know are going to lose face they 'll lose trust with their customers because they 've got the security hole. If you're a country, you're really worried about that because you're basically endangering the five or 10 or 20 million Australians who might use, I don't know, Microsoft or Apple operating system or whatever, um, because this security hole that's been known about hasn't been closed. And so in a sense, what it, it, it indicates is not only a shift to a cyberspace for a silent war, that's being waged, but it also indicates a supremacy of offensive versus, uh, you know, on top of or overpowering defensive approaches to this war. That's not something there's been a lot of debate about in the public, but there needs to be. Because we all depend every day on our technologies that our phone operating systems work to be able to call our loved one, Your elderly mom's at home and unwell. You have to pick up your kid from school, whatever it is. And to to have the sort of guts of that system potentially ripped out by a known vulnerability that our own agencies knew about and didn't warn us about that's bad. You know, do you, know, you think, and- um, do you think because, um, Sule- I mean, you understand
0: these technologies and a lot of people don't so much, but we are depending on them, as you say, um, for day-to-day interactions and, you know, from financial interactions to social interactions, workplaces, things like that. But so many, um, you know, we, we heard Julian Assange himself, but also his legal team talking about the dire threat to, to his life and, mm. and freedoms and things like that. For, for many years, we've heard them speak about that. And I get a sense that it's been characterised as kind of far-fetched and out there and you read this Yahoo yeah. story and you go, whoa, it, it's not, um, and, you know, it is, taking yeah. it at face value and also with all those sources that you spoke about. But when, when it comes to the public debate uh, about, you know, just broader than the, the situation surrounding Julian Assange, do you think because it's been characterised in that way. It's, it's challenging for people to have that bu- public debate because it feels like it's in the realms of conspiracy theory or whatever, but it, it's actually not. These are really serious issues that we face every day and whistleblowers aren't really protected in the way that we'd hope to be able to, to share information that we need to have those
2: discussions. Exactly. I mean, as we saw, you know, Chelsea Manning, whistleblower about two wars gone wrong, Um, and and a killing by US military of innocent, unarmed civilians and and injuring children in Iraq. Um, It not only faced prison time initially of seven years, but then was re-imprisoned for refusing to give evidence in front of a grand jury, um, having been released. So whistleblowers are harassed, they are not protected. And clearly the legislation uh, in Australia is not adequate, especially uh, around public servants. Um, So whistleblowers in the public sector, that needs to be revamped and improved. So we have to we have to get that right. But clearly, you know, Australia also needs to be thinking about these broader issues about cyber weaponry, transparency. I mean, most of the treaty agreements between the five eyes are secret. Now, you don't have to give every little detail of it. That information should be public. Because if we're going to be giving information about our citizens, about our of the eavesdropping that we do, et cetera, to allies, the public needs to understand what that information is being given, especially if it's going to be used to assassinate our citizens. The craziness of. The idea that it is literally like a James Bond plot, but it's true to assassinate someone, a Bourne plot, but it's true to assassinate someone, it does make people initially go, well, that's, that's just nuts. You know, oh, they're just allegations that aren't true. And there they're pack. there's a small number of kind of smarmy British journalists who are anti-colonial in their attitude, who've had this sort of nose in the air attitude towards, Julie, you're just making it all up. But now the reason this Yahoo News story is so extraordinary is he's not making it up. We saw from the UC Global stuff. So this is a company that was employed by the Ecuadorian government to secure the embassy. And in fact, it was leaking all the information to the CIA for a fee. There was a microphone hidden in the fire extinguisher in the room where Julian was meeting with his legal team, you know, where he's meeting with his medical medical advisors. About his medical issues Like how, What an invasion yeah. There was it, bugging in the toilet You know I, I actually said, said off
0: air That you know There is a new James Bond film Out at the moment <laughs> Coming our way <laughs> It's just Yeah sorry Dylan
1: Yeah It's, it's extraordinary stuff And uh, you're, you're one of A number of signatories To an open letter To, to Scott Morrison And Foreign Minister Maurice Payne um, and, and all the people Who put their name To the letter I understand have, have at some point Visited Julian Assange And are a mix of Sort of legal counsel Friends mm-hmm. and associates And um, and the question sort of, uh, the, the, the statement rather asked the question about the nature of, of surveillance on, on those of you who, who put your name to that letter. And I mean, you've, uh, it's, it's been long known that you've had an association with Julian Assange and, and you've talked about the nature of the surveillance on, on you as well. Do these latest revelations raise additional concerns about um, just to what extent yourself and, and others who are friends and associates of him are being monitored by foreign governments?
2: Yeah, and also our own government. I mean, I'd like some answers from our government about that. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever had a speeding ticket. I've barely had a handful of parking tickets. You know, I am not a person who is a major criminal. Um, and and I, unlike some other leaders in our country, say I'm not being investigated by ICAC. And yet here it is that I, a former senator, Scott Ludlam, a former Greens uh, staffer, Felicity Ruby, um, lawyers have actually suffered Surveillance, obvious surveillance—the kind of surveillance that your friends or your family, who you go out with somewhere, go, "Who's that creepy guy in the corner? Who's following you around?" Like obvious surveillance, Mm. and 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 it's just like, why are you doing this? This is not okay. You need to give an explanation. I expect an explanation for why I'm being harassed this way and surveilled. I mean, they followed my family on holidays to Queensland for heaven's sake. It was ridiculous. I mean, I know we all want a holiday in winter. Uh, It's
0: like you make the jokes before I make them so because it's not a joke, it better, but I was actually thinking that
1: as well. Someone might take that at the moment, a holiday with with security (laughs) on a detail following you.
2: Uh I'm sure the head of the surveillance team was like, I'll put my hand up for that one. (laughs) He's like, can we get a family unit? I want to do it with
1: the (laughs) kids. Strange, strange world we live in.
0: Well, what now with this? story do you think i mean you know we're way over time um but what what now because as you say um you know I, i didn't know that yahoo was known for for breaking big national security stories and here it is what do you think will come from it
2: I don't know. It depends. So first of all, there is a moment where the Australian government could write to the US government and say, we are friends. We have signed a sub deal. Could you please make this go away? And that might give the Biden administration, in a sense, the oomph it needs within its own political circles to go, yes, you know, our ally has asked. But for that to happen, the Australian government has to ask. Now, it'll be easier for the Australian government if they ask, because this is just a thorn in their side. Really, they have other things to do uh, with governance. But again, they would need to have the guts to do it. And similarly, you know, a same inquiry could be made for immediate bail. He's sitting in a prison charged with nothing in Britain for the last two years, just awaiting extradition to the U.S. Now on appeal. So he won the lower court ruling. The U.S. has actually appealed the case saying, no, 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 no. We don't like the outcome. We still want to extradite him. And, and the fact is, is that the Australian government could also write to their British allies and say, please just take him out of the prison, the COVID-filled dungeon he is in. He, you know, I've heard that he has described that he may be the only person in that prison who hasn't had COVID yet um, and, and, you know, looking after their citizens. So those would be simple things to do. And I think they might trigger a change. I am quietly hopeful that there are some intelligent, progressive people in the Biden administration who could see this would be a really smart move, a great thing to do, in fact, on some launch of some democracy, international democracy platform, you know, activity they want to do. They announce this and he gets to be the good guy,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: and, and and that would be a great thing and probably good for his ratings as well. So I could see that would be a very good outcome. But really, in many ways, the Australian government needs to get off its seat and do something about it to make that happen. And hopefully, this will be the article to do that. Maybe
0: um, Sue, let it's been great to have you uh, on the grapevine Vine again. It's been it's been a while, um, and yeah, thanks for spending so much time with us this morning. Thank you Thank Thanks. you Cheers Sulette Dreyfus there Dr Sulette Dreyfus lecturer In the School of Computing And Information Systems At the University of Melbourne It's very easy to find that article If you haven't read it um, It's on Yahoo And it looks at a CIA plot To capture or kill Julian Assange Triple R on FM Digital Online and via the app Thanks so much for
1: being here it means a lot
0: And next month, the world's leaders will gather in Glasgow for the COP26 climate talks. And while here, the discussion is around whether the Prime Minister will attend or not, and if the federal government will sign up to net zero emissions by 2050, the focus globally has moved to how the world will halve emissions this decade, with expectations growing that countries like Australia will be more ambitious. We've seen, at least at the state level, that coalition governments can be ambitious, the New South Wales government has just announced it will reduce its emissions by 50% by 2030 and that's on 2005 levels and Cam Walker is Cam's campaigns director at Friends of the Earth and watches this space closely both here and internationally and Cam it's great to have you back on the grapevine good morning.
3: Yeah, good morning.
0: Good to have a chat. Yeah. And um, since we last spoke, Cam, there's been more ebbs and flows in the climate debate in Australia. And um, it's interesting when even the federal government's own members, including Senator Bridget McKenzie, are calling for a climate plan. They want to see it. And we haven't seen one yet. Do you think we might have the federal government unveil something before the Glasgow talks start next month?
3: Oh, they really have to. Um, Back in 2015, when we signed on to the Paris Agreement, we all said, you know, each of the 200 countries said, we will present our plan. And, you know, that's six years ago now. And this is the final, final moment at which countries will show their hand. Already many have, for instance, the United States and the UK and many of the European nations in Sorry, India hasn't as yet. China's started to indicate where it's going. We just cannot go there and not show uh, what cards we're going to play. So it's inevitable. And um, that's why there's so much pressure uh, in the media debate at present, but certainly within the coalition about where we will we'll actually land on that target.
1: Yeah, and, and how do you sort of um, disentangle all, all these issues and what we're hearing, Cam? Because there is obviously growing pressure on the international sta- stage, but but here in Australia, you know, Bridget McKenzie has um, has hit back at some of our Liberal colleagues, calling them vacuous for for talking about transition and and uh, you know reducing our reliance on on fossil fuels. Meanwhile likes of Josh Frydenberg have started to talk a little bit more explicitly about the the benefits and opportunities from going renewable. And, and, you know, Matt Canavan said that he won't budge. Where's this all going to end up?
3: Uh, where we're at now is basically a split between the culture war climate deniers on the one hand, and the people that actually live in the twenty-first century. You look at uh, Matt Keane who's been the climate change minister in the Liberal government in New South Wales. You know he completely gets it. He understands all the benefits that come with renewable energy, and many of the others, Darren Chester, who's a Nationals MP from Gippsland, Steph Ryan, who's a Nationals MP from Northern Victoria. They all get it. That basically climate change is real. It's coming. At us very fast, and most people want to see action. But then there is this little hardcore um, Barnaby Joyce, of course, um, is probably the cornerstone of that as a key blocker. But there's this little hardcore of climate deniers, both in the Liberals and both in the Nationals, and they're doing everything they can to put a spanner in the works as the government is pushed or even dragged to having a position on net zero emissions.
0: And do you think that Scott Morrison might? Have more success uh, compared to past prime ministers to, to bring that together, Cam?
3: Look, sadly, the coalition has form on this back to the days of John Howard, uh, certainly the days of Tony Abbott. We've had a very bad reputation in the global negotiations. There was that brief little moment, I guess, in the mid-2000s, where Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister and said climate change is the, the, the crisis issue of our times. Uh, but we have had coalition governments for a very long time and they have had a less than honourable reputation in the international negotiations. Um, Scott Morrison is of course in a really difficult position because the community wants action, business wants action, business wants certainty as well as action. Um, The polling consistently shows where this is going and a growing number of Smart moderates within the coalition understand what needs to happen, uh, and yet he is second in command He's an absolute blocker. So I really can't see how he's going to play this, but he can't go there empty-handed, and he really needs to go there. There's still a conversation about whether he will even attend, um, and it would be such a bad look if we didn't uh, attend the conference. It's only in a couple of weeks, and it's remarkable that the plan that they want to use which will bring us to net zero emissions by mid-century, people like Senator McKenzie, key people in government still haven't seen it. So that doesn't bode well because if they spring it into the public too late there could be a really massive internal backlash and that could derail it um, completely before it goes to to the Glasgow talks.
1: And uh, I mean, you know, there have been murmurings as to whether Scott Morrison will attend as we've sort of touched on. Uh, Why is that do you think because I mean you know there's been these massive uh, international agreements like the AUKUS agreement which of course is about defence and and the sort of Indochina um, Indo-Pacific region there's the, the meeting of the quads uh, last month as well but but surely if Scott Morrison didn't attend that would look pretty bad given the the nature of these high-level meetings that have happened in recent memory.
3: It would look really bad. And what the PM tends to do is go to the forums when, where he feels he can kind of get away with his messaging. So with the Quad, which is Australia, India, Japan uh, and, the, and the USA, there was this conversation about a climate crisis that was even in the final secretariat uh, or the final communique that came out of that meeting. But at the same time, it talks very generically about ambition and technology and adaptation. And Japan, in particular, loves technological solutions, as uh, Scott Morrison does. So he puts himself in those positions where he will give the sense that he's doing the right thing. But then when you drill into it, the detail um, is, you know, is very much missing. And that's why him attending the COP in Glasgow at the end of this month is so important because this is the one where we all finally fess up and say what we're going to do about climate change. And that's on two levels. It's about the emissions reduction. So what is our ambition? But it's also how we fund it. And a really big part of the conversation is how do we fund the developing nations, the global south nations and the very vulnerable nations? How do we fund them and support them to transition into a clean future? while also adapting to the climate change that's locked into the system. so this is the last moment he can't bluff anymore. he really needs to be at Glasgow.
0: and I mean if if he doesn't go, and again i'm not I'm not sort of arguing the case for or against here, but um, yes, the optics would be terrible. if he doesn't go but somehow we end up with a miraculously strong ambitious plan and that goes and someone else speaks to it, um, could Australia still play a constructive part in those negotiations, do you think?
3: I think uh, we are at a kind of pretty pragmatic end of this and it's really interesting to see with Joe Biden becoming the President of the United States. Initially, he worked to kind of undo all the damage that Trump put in place, but now he's very activist in the way he's engaged in the world. So help, he helped bring the quad uh, conversation together. He's pressuring Australia. He's pre- pressuring the blockers. So it's really interesting to see What would happen if we went there with a mediocre plan Mm. or if we had a good plan and Scott didn't turn up? I think at this point the pragmatists would win and say, well, a good plan without a leader is much better than a bad plan with a leader. So I think at this point, knowing what we know, knowing that we really can't hold warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius um, as it is, we're already well past one degree. We've got so much climate change locked into the system, even if we do act now at scale. You know, we really can't do that and it's that point where we need to take what we can get and there is a fear that Australia will be left behind if we don't basically get on the train
1: with everyone else. Speaking with Cam Walker, Campaigns Director with Friends of the Earth, he joins us roughly monthly on the show today, talking about the, the lead up to the, the climate talks in Glasgow, which are happening next month. And it feels like domestically, at least, Cam, a lot of the conversation is about net zero by 2050. But we know a, a bunch of nations have you know long ago committed to that and that really what's going to be sort of at stake in, in these climate talks is what we do in the next decade and, and the kind of initiatives, practically speaking, that can get Get us to sort of you know much more ambitious targets by 2030. Do you have much faith that that Australia will come up with a package in that sort of a time frame that sort of leads us down that road in, in a in a practical and, and productive sense?
3: So we're in a dilemma here in Australia. We've had sustained failure by the federal government to act. And so the states and territories have all acted. And states like New South Wales and Victoria, we all now have a commitment to get to net zero emissions by 2050 at the latest. Some have gone for 2040. So we already have a de facto commitment. It's just the federal government hasn't signed on to that. But that process took so long that the science has moved along and now we know that 2050 is way too late. And, you know, the the core conversation within the UN, within the global um, forums such as COP, is we need to decarbonise by the end of of the 2030s at the latest and the developing nations need to decarbonise by 2040. So delay is the new denial, unfortunately. And we need to bring forward that conversation and actually be decarbonising now. And there's a really important bit of work by the International Energy Agency Um, earlier this year. They released a roadmap to net zero emissions and they were saying if we want to be serious about going past 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, there can be no new fossil fuel developments from now. So, yeah, exactly what we do this decade and what we do up through to 2030 is really the main game now. And 2050 is just becoming an esoteric kind of figure in the sand uh, in, in the distance. It doesn't matter in real terms anymore.
0: And uh, and that's why the New South Wales government commitment, was it just last week? Time is warping for me. Uh, I think just last week to 50% emissions reductions by 2030. So that's you know eight, eight years' time and that's an increase on, I think it was 35% or whatever they had committed to prior to that. The confidence with which that was presented by the Environment Minister there in New South Wales, Matt Keane, was really telling, I thought. Do you think as many commentators have said that uh, the plan released in, in New South Wales and that it did bring together both Liberal Party and National Party in that state uh, could influence what happens at the federal level and I suppose since the plan was released the New South Wales Premier and Deputy Premier have both resigned so I don't know what that means for the plan but I'm um, just yeah, supposed to speak to the plan first Kev
3: Yeah so the plan was good and of course Victoria went first. Victoria committed 45 to 50% reduction by 2030 mm-hmm. um, so they we're ahead of the pack, but New South Wales is important because it is a liberal-controlled state, and you know it's received quite favourable attention from the Prime Minister. Now uh, it will be really interesting to see, uh, you know, who does become the new Premier and uh, the front runner. At this point, um, it would appear that he's uh, he's quite conservative on climate issues, which probably isn't a good thing, uh, given that Matt Keane had indicated his interest early on. You know, he certainly gets it, but we just don't know how it will play out. But it's really important we have targets for 2030. So it was really good to see the largest economy in the nation. That is New South Wales committing to a 2030 target.
0: Well, I reckon that's all we've got time for, Cam. But um, no doubt we'll touch base with you in well in a month's time would be right at the very beginnings of those um, those international climate talks. So looking forward to, to catching up with you again then.
3: That'd be great. See you then. Thanks,
0: Cam. I'm um, Cam Walker, Campaigns Director over at Friends of the Earth. Triple... Ah. and as a subscriber to the age which i am last week i received an email from the masthead's new indigenous affairs reporter jack Lattimore, uh, biripai man and previous writer for the curry mail editor of indigenous x and nitv uh, jack's Email introduction covered a lot of ground that we thought would have would be of interest to Triple R listeners too, and so we've asked Jack Lattimore to be our guest this morning, and it's great to have you with us, Jack. Welcome back to Triple R, and congrats on the new gig at the age.
4: Oh, thanks very much. Good morning to you guys. Yeah. Hi, how are you?
0: Yeah, going going pretty well. Going well. All things considered. (laughs) Um, But I really, I was actually pretty chuffed to get that email introduction. I'm not sure that I've received one from uh, one of the reporters at the age before. And I just thought... Uh, you know, some of the issues you raised in it were were quite interesting. The first being uh, that you're asked often about differences you experience between writing for black media and mainstream media. And I just thought, yeah, it'd be good for you to let us know what those sorts of differences are as a, a new um, yeah. reporter for the Age.
4: Yeah, well, there's a few. Um, I guess the main one is um, how do you go about, you know, how do you go about doing journalism in community. Um, you know, those big, broad sort of brush, brush stroke questions that uh, people are sometimes curious about, but um, there is a difference between going about things um, but I guess black journalists think about uh, it being culturally appropriate, but I just mean um, for other people, you know, how do you go about getting stories and doing things in the right way when you're doing uh, stories that concern Aboriginal affairs? Um Yeah, I I kind of outlined a a few of those in that piece. I can't even really remember it off the top of my head (laughs) because I wrote it, you know, a while back and they kind of sat on it for a while. Yeah, right.
0: Because you've been there for a few months, haven't you?
4: I've been there for a month and probably two weeks now, two or three weeks. Um, Yeah, and it's uh, been a very interesting period because I started uh, when we're out of, you know, we had that sort of reprieve of lockdowns. Uh, went into the office twice, and then we had that lockdown that started at 5 o'clock on the afternoon and I kind of hightailed it home to get home uh, before the the curfew or whatever it was, Uh, and I haven't been back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been really
1: weird. Yeah, totally. A f- familiar experience for a lot of people starting a new job in lockdown where you're pretty much do- doing it from your lounge room, <laughs> which, is, um, which is pretty bizarre. But, I mean, the first article of yours that I read, and, and um, possibly the, the first article um, you published with The Age under this new gig, was um, around Eddie Betts' response to his former teammate Taylor Walker's uh, racist comments at a Sandful game. And uh, it kind of spoke volumes to me that this story first appeared in The Age, given how many AFL footy journalists would have no doubt been knocking down Eddie Betts' door to to get his comments on this particular saga. I guess some sort of tell us your side of the story and and why it was that Eddie Betts entrusted you with capturing his response and and doing it responsibly.
4: Yeah, well, um, they were. I mean, I wasn't even following the Tex Walker uh, racism scandal at the time. Um, And... Yeah, I just, uh, one day I was working on something else and I um, was told that Eddie wanted to talk and that he wanted to talk to me. So I gave him a call and we had a bit of a chat and the reason that he wanted to talk to me, especially uh, instead of you know the, the regular AFL writers, uh, whether that's at the paper or Fox Sports or anywhere else, is um, he'd asked around and he wanted to... Um, he wanted a message to come across that this sort of thing happens um, routinely within uh, his life, within you know, the lives of Aboriginal people. Um, but the sorts of things he knew that he had to address to get that message across could have been taken as the, you know, the directing the story, the sensational sort of stuff, um, and he didn't want that to come, to come across... He had had some relationship with Tex Walker. I didn't know that at the time. I learned that talking to him and afterwards, um, had that relationship when he was over there playing for the Crows. Uh, So, you know, there was a lot of things that, and he was kind of cut about it as well. He was a bit angry in that. Um, So he, you know, he was venting a little bit, and he just didn't want some of those things to come out. He didn't trust, other journalists around the place to work with him on getting what he wanted, what he felt was the most important elements of that story. Um, so, yeah, he kind of, he'd asked around, he'd asked, I'd worked with Briggs before, I think he had a chat with Briggs um, and a few others, and I think Adam Goods maybe. And um, yeah, they just, you know, I said, if you want to get that sort of messaging across and that sort of those sorts of considerations without being, um, you know, without having, uh, to feeling exploited, then, um, you know, have a chat with Jack. So we did that. Um, There was a few people that weren't too happy that he came and spoke with me instead of them or their organisation. But, you know, too bad. That's the sorts of things that need to happen within the, the media, Sector, uh, the news sector of the media industry, um, and yeah, that's it's starting to happen more and more. It's not just me. I mean, there's a few of us that have got roles within what you'd sort of term as being mainstream media, and there's a lot more that are freelancing. And um, increasingly, you're seeing, you know, people that have sensitive and culturally sensitive stories go to these journalists and writers in order to get those stories across, because it's safer, Um, the quality, I think, is higher, it's more nuanced, Um, and, yeah, it's just... Yeah, there's something about Aboriginal people telling Aboriginal stories that doesn't come across when non-Aboriginal people have a go at it. Um, those stories that are done by non-Aboriginal people, sometimes they're really you know great stories or whatever, but they're missing an element, and that element varies. Um, but it's just, I like to think of it as similar to... Um, Indigenous art, you know, you have that yeah. the whole inquiry into fake Indigenous art. You can get stuff that looks good on canvas or on board or whatever, and it's technically painted really well, but it's not genuine. It's, it's not legitimate art. Um, so, yeah, you just sort of lose something, I believe. But that's my position. There's probably others that argue differently.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm interested in how. I mean, you're you're new to the age, but I'm interested how it sort of works. Um, will will work. Will, how you work and I guess. Working at the age, um, will you have the freedom to pursue your own stories there, Jack, or is there that sort of balance between the more you know exclusive stories or features and and then news? Uh,
4: well, I didn't know what to expect coming in. Um, I'd come across from NITV. Uh, where I wasn't doing a lot of writing, but I was doing a lot of editing and, um, like, sub-editing and also editorial. Um, And that was a completely different thing, which I kind of, from memory, wrote about in that piece, which it was uh, far more of an emphasis on um, providing, you know, like a a black newswire. We were just taking anything that that came up that was newsworthy and trying to turn that around. And the whole point was that uh, we would do it timely and uh, sharp enough that it you know these important stories might get uh, a run elsewhere whether that be at SBS or you know these stories come across the radar of other news organizations so I kind of came in thinking that it would be similar to that and really pushing to have daily sort of a number of daily stories come out um, but you know really tight turnaround type stories um, the role isn't that it's far more um like the scope there to dive into stories um, step inside stories work with people research all that sort of stuff um so look going forward it's kind of a, a cross between those i imagine at the moment i'm really focused on uh this project that the age has got coming out around the europe justice commission um and that i believe is going to roll out this weekend, although they make you it back, which happened the week just gone. Um, so, yeah, kind of working a lot with... Um Mandy Nicholson was one uh, last week. She uh, done some stuff around language with, uh, for this project. Um, I'm doing a kind of an explainer with an editor from Sydney that is kind of explaining what the Uric Justice Commission is in context of justice commissions uh, globally and how that sits on the landscape within Australia. Um, so these sorts of things take, unless explainers take me a week and a half to two weeks so far, um, which you just wouldn't get anywhere else. Yeah. I feel yeah. um, you know just because lack of resources and a whole different sort of array of pressures and constraints, um, newsrooms don't usually provide that. Um, yeah this is they want to do this project they want to do it well so I guess they give me a bit of scope around this to kind of do these stories. In terms of getting to decide what stories I want to do, hopefully there's uh, sort of a bit of that down the track when I came in, uh, the editor Gay Alcorn um, she was she kind of made it clear that I wasn't just to do indigenous affairs as well like you know, other areas of journalism that I can do and that I'm interested in. Um, so why would I be pigeonholed as just, you know, only being able to do Aboriginal stories? Um, so that was refreshing to have an editor, you know, the, the editor of the paper, have that on board before it came in. Um, in the past, just as a freelancer and stuff, you always get pigeonholed that if there's anything to do with blackfellas, then you know that person's got to do it. Um, but you know, I do music journalism as well, and I like to think that I do it fairly well. Um, so yeah, there's an opportunity to do that a little bit. Um, you know, whatever else comes across really. Yeah. Um yeah to have a bit of a go at.
1: I should remind listeners, we're speaking with Jack Lattimore, uh, Birupai man and, and The Age's new Indigenous Affairs journalist talking all about his new gig and what we might expect to read in the pages and um, online at The Age uh, in the, the months and, and hopefully many years ahead as well. And just sort of looking at the mix of stories you've done, it very much speaks to that breadth. I mean, you, you wrote a piece on Fists of Fury being dubbed in Noongar Da, Language for MIF, and then stories on the Uruk Justice Commission and, and uh, you know the Eddie Bet story, which we talked about as well. And, and I Suppose you know in relation to to the Yuruk Justice Commission going forward, and obviously you know you're predominantly housebound at the moment, like many of us are in Victoria. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to are you going to be getting out on the road and and seeing how that's sort of working with community as as part of that process?
4: Yeah, and I can't wait because the one you know lockdown, cabin fever, and everything, but also um, I love travelling around Victoria. I've done a little bit of it, not a whole lot of it. But you know the the opportunity to, and in some ways, fail after what the commission does in some cases, get in the community before it arrives. Um, you know that's pretty appealing. Um, we did that a bit uh, with NITV, like in terms of getting out and around uh, different communities and stuff. Um, yeah, I just find it really rewarding to be able to get out and talk with people. A lot of the best stories, you know, you can't publish. Um, but, yeah, getting feedback from, you know, different mobbing community about uh, how people have attempted to come in and get stories or how they've gone about getting stories, all of that stuff's, you know, useful. Um, you get a lot of leads, you uh, get a lot, or you meet a lot of characters, um, and just, you know, insights into the country around the place as well. Um when I first joined NITV, I went up and did a little bit up around Mildura, Swan Hill, um, around, you know, just the, the water sort of issues up there. Um, uh, and, yeah, it was got taken on the country with a lot of significant ring trees, um, and, you know, that's a project that I want to do. Getting out uh, around the place has had a bit of the cultural significance or um, importance of these ring trees around Victoria.
1: Yeah, wow. Well, well, you know, look forward to, to reading so much of your reporting. It sounds like a, a really exciting time ahead, not just because, you know, hopefully lockdown is going to be ending pretty soon mm-hmm. here. But, um, but yeah, getting, getting out and, and, and telling us you know, those stories is, is going to be so you know, beneficial for us as readers and um, beneficial for us as listeners as well, because you have been on Triple on R a bit with um, Jess Lily on her former show, Surrounded, and going to be popping up on, on her new show on Thursday night, Spin Cycle, I understand, um, sometime soon.
4: Yeah, I'm a rotating host. Awesome. Is what I'm led to the she, um Yeah, she signed me up, so that's good, I think. She's got a few other good ones in there too, so hopefully we'll have um, you know a different lineup coming and going. So that should be a lot of fun. I don't know how we're going to do it in lockdown because last time we were supposed to uh, be in lockdown and we had that break, and uh, she made me travel over to Brunswick all the time. Um <laughs>
2: You Uh, said
4: you like travelling. Mahmood and I were bloody having to hoof over there after work. Eventually, signed up to do it over uh, the internet and she dragged us in there. So she's. um, Drives a hard bargain. Yes. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, really look forward to that and um, congrats again on the new gig, Jack. And uh, yeah, really look forward to, to chatting again sometime soon.
4: Yeah,
1: that'd be great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Cheers. thanks. Jack Lattimore there, the age's new Indigenous Affairs journalist. He's a Biripai man with family ties to the Tanangati and Gamangia nations. And um, as you heard, there is going to be popping up on our brand new pop-up, th- popping up on the pop-up show on Thursday's Spin Cycle, which I kicked off last week with um, Jess Lilly, um, uh, Najma and Char- Charlie Lewis as well, being joined by Margaret Simons. A really fascinating show and well worth listening to, particularly given Jack Lattimore is going to be appearing sometime in the future. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.